You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Boulder Weekly is being brought to you in part by Weissman Family Dental in Boulder, Colorado. For over 25 years, Weissman Family Dental has been providing high-quality dentistry. They offer regular checkups, emergency care, and a wide range of specialty services. They also have staff that speak Spanish. If you are looking for a new dentist, find them at WeissmanFamilyDental.com or call them at 303-494-0101 and tell them Audio Information Network of Colorado sent you. Thank you for joining us for the Thursday, May 19th, 2022 edition of the Boulder Weekly. My name is Orion Rooney. Today, we will be reading the following articles. Planting Seeds of Hope by Caitlin Rocket. The Gospel of Neptune by Carter Ferryman. The Natural Arc of Rebellion by Angela K. Evans. Colorado Musicians Unite for Ukraine Benefit Concert by Adam Perry. How the Sausage is Made by Michael J. Casey. Recession Resilient by Will Brenza. Takeout Minus the Waste by John Lendorf. A Multi-Roaster Coffee Shop That's a Gateway, Not a Gatekeeper by Matt Mainpaw. Masterclass Boulder by Benjamin Ritema. Planting Seeds of Hope. Boulder-based charity supplies Ukrainians with protective gear and medical aid by Caitlin Rocket. For weeks during Ukraine's Orange Revolution in late 2004, Andriy Zakutayev lived in a tent in Kiev in solidarity with thousands of citizens in protest of government corruption, voter intimidation, and electoral fraud. That's where we met, says his partner, Victoria Olinik. Today, the couple is still invested in making their native land a better place, albeit from 5,000 miles away here in Boulder, where they manage Sunflower Seeds Ukraine, a small all-volunteer organization with a multinational team that provides medical aid and protective gear to groups of citizens on the ground fighting the Russian invasion in Ukraine. Sunflower Seeds also provides humanitarian assistance to civilians who are now tasked with living day-to-day life during a war. People did not expect this invasion, Olinik says. No one we knew left the country. People never thought that this would get to this level or that anything really dangerous could happen. Everyone's in complete shock. But after the initial shock passed... Many were prepared to respond, adds Zakutayev, because a lot of grassroots campaigns, humanitarian organizations, and a kind of civil moment had been established in 2004 and 2014. Those revolution times around the Russian annexation invasion of southeastern Ukraine in 2014. So I think a lot of people were able to turn on a dime and just bypass that initial shock and start doing things from the bottom up. Zakutayev and Olinik have been living in the United States since 2006, attending graduate school at Oregon State University before moving to Boulder to start their careers. Zakutayev and Olinik began their charity work in 2014, when Russia invaded Crimea and the Donbass, providing some help on a peer-to-peer basis, says Zakutayev, to organizations in Ukraine that were supporting troops. They took their aid efforts to the next level when Russia engaged in a full-fledged invasion on February 24th this year, formalizing Sunflower Seeds Ukraine, named after Ukraine's national flower. So many Ukrainians in the United States are doing exactly the same thing as Sunflower Seeds, explains Olinik. Just raising funds from their connections, from their friends, buying medical aid, buying protective gear, and sending it to Ukraine. We see these large organizations like Red Cross and UNICEF raising millions, and that's important work. But sometimes it's too slow. One of the major complaints from Ukrainians is drastic shortages of basic protective gear, helmets, and first aid kits. As of May 9th, 
Sunflower Seeds Ukraine has received just over $47,000 from nearly 100 donors in 16 countries and provided hundreds of hemostatic kits, compression bandages, tourniquets, chest seals, first aid kits, medical pouches, and military tactical gear. With help from friends they met in graduate school in Oregon, plus a delivery team based in Poland, Zakutayev and Olinik used donations to purchase everything from medical supplies to military gear and get it to people on the ground in Ukraine. The delivery team works to package, create instructions in Ukrainian, and pass the packages to buses and minivans with dedicated drivers who distribute the goods across the border. I don't think Ukraine would have been now in a position that it is in the war, Zakutayev says if it wasn't for everything Poland has done for Ukraine. To donate to Sunflower Seeds Ukraine, visit sunflowerseedsukraine.org aid. Contact the author at crocket at boulderweekly.com. The Gospel of Neptune by Carter Ferryman Growing up in the Baptist church in Denver, a queer black boy slept while the preacher gave his sermon, but the boy came to life when the choir belted out the gospel. He watched in fascination as members of the congregation caught the Holy Ghost. Other churchgoers snickered at their spiritual freakouts, but Neptune wondered, why can't I do that to people too? It was literally always the music, says the boy. Now a 24-year-old creating soulful, electro-tinged pop music under the moniker Neptune, N3PTUNE. Other than the fear-based teachings and the word, I didn't want to hear that shit, he adds with a laugh. Over the last few years, Neptune, with flamboyant costumes, theatrical stage presence, powerful vocals, and poignant lyricism, has become a staple in Denver's music scene, holding down a residency at the Meadowlark, putting on a breakthrough performance at Denver Fashion Week, rocking the house at Meow Wolf and Westward Music Showcase, and opening for acts like Wyclef Jean, Sleigh Bells, Kenny Hoopla, and Aluna of Aluna George. But as a black queer artist, Neptune describes performing for the first time at Denver's Pride Fest in 2017 as a defining experience. I was 19 and found out five minutes before that I was actually the first person performing, Neptune says. My dear sister Kayla Ray was with me when I found out. She was like, you're built for this. You're here for a reason. And the little baby me ate that up, then did it again the next year and the year after that. Pride Fest was one of the first opportunities Neptune got to showcase his style. He had backup dancers in matching attire, performing choreography he developed. In a way, it was like being in church, Neptune now the preacher, offering an explosive musical sermon. But in 2020, the angel of death came knocking. COVID knocked me the fuck out, he says. I went through a physical, spiritual, full-blown rebirth entirely. Standing at the precipice with the grim reaper nudging him to jump, Neptune did the one thing he could muster the power for, write. Thus, his debut album, Renaissance, which translates to rebirth in French, began taking shape. Crafted in collaboration with fellow Denver-based multi-hyphenate Alex Rusty Steve Restivo, Renaissance is a showcase of organic talent, with no room for smarmy love songs or ruminations about the past. Renaissance is a collection of raw, real-time experiences. The album's centerpiece, Black Horse, shows Neptune pushing the outer edge of his vocal range. There's a renaissance on the rise, he croons, evoking the spirituality of the gospel choir he so loved as a boy. But the time is nigh, he warns by the chorus, prepare to die. In Absent, Neptune speaks on his chronic and current tendency to dissociate in difficult situations. On White Pony, the artist explores the reality of nuance, the fact that we are all anti-heroes, he says. 
In a recent Instagram post, Neptune opened up to his fans about his major struggles with depression right at the beginning of Mental Health Awareness Month. Music is many things for Neptune, including a form of therapy and a connection to a higher power. The vibrations and the waves and everything it can be, he says. Some folks got Jesus, but music is my savior, he says with a laugh. Fresh off a studio release, it's common for artists to be muddled about what the future holds. Neptune, however, has a master plan, his ascension plotted all the way up to October. Performance, his ultimate medium, will be in droves, including Denver's Globe Hall on May 20th, and a nationwide tour alongside sleigh bells that kicks off in August, going from Toronto to Detroit, Chicago, then Minneapolis, Atlanta, Charlotte, and beyond. There are no more ifs, only whens. If was when I was still living in my mom's basement, Neptune says. If was when I was working three jobs and music was the third. I am firm on my manifestations. I am firm on my frequencies. I am firm in my ability. Neptune knows what it's like to be alienated as an oddball, to be tokenized as a queer black man, to be backed into a corner and told what it is he does and how he should do it. Neptune refuses to take any of that shit nowadays. If anybody says what I should do or how I should do it, he says, I'll tell him I'm going to do every goddamn thing I want to do. Email comments or questions to editorial at boulderweekly.com. The Natural Arc of Rebellion Interdependence is the Mechanism for Survival in Ezra Furman's Latest Work by Angela K. Evans What an age. Everyone is dying, everything is dying, and the earth is dying also, eaten up by the sun and the wind. I don't know where I get the courage to keep on living in the midst of these ruins. Let us love each other to the end. So wrote George Sand, pen name and chosen identity for French novelist and journalist Amantine Lucille Aurore Dupont in 1870. In her time, Sand balked at convention, yet she became one of the most renowned romantic writers of early 19th century Europe. She smoked tobacco and wore men's clothing in public, subverting stereotypes and the law, which required a permit for such behavior. She divorced her husband, gained sole custody of her children, and was known for her romantic rebellion, unabashed by her affairs with both men and women. More than 150 years later, Sand's words, written to friend Gustave Flaubert later in life, hint to the existential dread that plague many in our current moment. It's a reminder that there really is nothing new under the sun, and even if it feels like the world is ending, life really does go on. Sand's words could also fit as an epigraph for indie rock singer-songwriter Ezra Furman's latest album, All of Us Flames, out August 26th. Written on a music retreat out in the desert east of Los Angeles, the record is a recognition that when it feels like things couldn't get any worse, the earth tends to keep spinning. Life continues, and the question becomes what to do with ourselves then. In Furman's view, apocalyptic references are often used as a scapegoat a way of putting all the responsibility of the world's problems on humans without engaging in the beauty of helping each other through a mess. It's an evolution from the punk-heavy protest songs of Furman's latest release, 2019's Twelve Nudes, which spoke out against the broader social structures, institutions, and power players that attempt to control. With her recent singles and forthcoming album, Furman becomes almost spiritual, reflecting her deepest concerns and the solace she's found with the people immediately surrounding her. I feel like there's a natural arc from a rebellion, a noisy moment of catharsis, a big cataclysm of breaking away from something or destroying, all that happens in a panic, and then it's like, well, what's the sustainable thing to do now? 
It felt like the world was ending, but after the world ends, it just keeps going, and we just have to take care of each other if we are to survive, she says. It's the idea that the end is never over. That's the place I've been in, and this is what this record reflects. In some ways, she says, the same could be said of her, and perhaps most people's, process of publicly voicing sexual identity and even gender identification. It's like, this could be a big moment to come out of the closet, to reject what you were expected to be and plant your feet somewhere else, she says. But then, you have to actually start becoming. At that moment, you're not done at all, you just started. On social media, Furman announced she's a trans woman and a mom in 2021. However, she's identified as genderqueer for years, and what the media has taken as a defining moment isn't so stark in her mind. I've just always been the shapeshifter. There's sort of the chaotic, beautiful reality of my becoming and finding my way to thrive, she says. I just think that being a trans woman is a thing, and that seems to be clearly what I'm doing. It's a life-saving relief for me to be feminine. For years, Furman resisted labels and the idea that she had to decide that she owed anyone an explanation. But in the last couple of years, she realized how helpful it could be to communicate with those closest to her, family and friends, what was going on inside. I guess it's just started to be true that other people knowing having some guidance on how to talk about me really started to be part of that freedom, she says. For it to be all internal, it's a lot of work to be the only one who knows. Musically, All of Us Flames relies much more heavily on a classic indie rock sound than her previous works, and the lyrics, while still referencing broader societal attitudes, speak more to community and communal existence. As she wrote, she found herself singing in the third-person plural, we, avoiding the you of second person and only referencing herself in the first person in one song. In her words, it's a move from lone wolf to recognizing who's in her corner. It really all comes down to interdependence, she says. Sneakily, it's kind of the key to the challenge of our whole future as a civilization. On a less conceptual level, Furman thinks she and her band simply made a good record, one she's proud of. Before putting pen to paper, Furman immersed herself in other music, leading her on a journey of discovering what disparate acts-slash-sounds had in common. Like what would happen if you fused overlooked 80s Bob Dylan records with the work of 60s-era all-girl pop groups The Shangri-Las. Or, what about putting country blues guitarist and singer Lightning Hopkins next to the earthy textures of Leonard Cohen? They seem very different, but what do they share, she says. She also drew from the oeuvre of David Berman, the musician behind the Silver Jews, Purple Mountains, and Pavement. Berman himself drew from the rich history of simple country and poetry to create his infamous lo-fi indie rock. Making records comes from me listening to so, so, so much music, Furman says. And when you hear the stuff that is the best stuff, the stuff that is almost holy, that comes from the fountain of humanity, or the tree of life, or something. I just have to see if I can do something like that. If the three recent singles are any indication of what's to come with the full-length record, Furman achieves her goal. Like Sand, Furman challenges the status quo, both in life and in art. By tapping into that universal artist, Furman finds another layer of herself through the music, a fresh tone of voice. On this record, her stark and simple vocals, set to easy chord strums and melodic drum beats, imbue hope. And she offers it to all of us, asking if we can trust each other enough to keep going. Send comments to editorial at boulderweekly.com. On the bill, Ezra Furman, 8 p.m. Saturday, May 28th, The Gothic Theater, 3263 South Broadway, Englewood. Tickets are $22.50. Colorado Musicians Unite for Ukraine Benefit Concert. Denver's Mercury Cafe will host Devochka, Slim Cessna, and more.
by Adam Perry. Dora Silver says she put together the Ukraine benefit happening Saturday, May 28th, because of the powerless feeling of watching the war unfolding in front of our eyes and wanting to do something to help. According to Silver, Devochka's Nick Urada, her son-in-law, was recently invited to play in Italy to raise money for people in Ukraine trying to rescue families trapped in bombed-out buildings, and instead decided to work with Silver to raise money for Ukraine right here in Colorado. Silver connected with the Ukrainian community in Denver and got the Ukrainian National Women's League of America, UNWLA, which has been around for 100 years, involved. The organization helps deliver humanitarian aid of many kinds, from food, water, and medicine to generators. That's just scratching the surface of what these women can do, Silver says. All of the money UNWLA raises goes to the source of need. For me and my family, she explains, it's also personal because my children's father and grandparents were from Minsk and Kiev, and sadly, most of their ancestors were wiped out during World War II for being Jewish. I have seen firsthand the sadness and loss that generations bear through these atrocities, that quiet, hidden sadness that is passed on through generations. So what can we do but show up and sing out our support and love in the way we can? Through partnership with the iconic Mercury Café, Silver and the Ukrainian National Women's League are teaming up with an all-star lineup of Colorado musicians, not just to raise money for Ukraine, but ensure it goes straight to the source. Boulder's own Ted Thacker, whose song I Cried Like a Silly Boy was famously recorded by Devochka and ended up in the movie I Love You, Philip Morris, will perform at the Benefit concert with his band under his Red Tack moniker. Thacker is well known around here for fronting Baldo, Rex, and Veronica, and is passionate about the effort to aid Ukraine. The war is definitely the saddest, most horrifying world event that's happening in my lifetime, Thacker said by phone. I'm glad all these people are coming together for it. I get in tears just thinking about it. Every day we hear more things, especially the way these poor young Russian soldiers are being brainwashed into these atrocities. It's insane, being brainwashed into thinking what they're doing is right, bombing apartment buildings and refugee convoys. It's horrific. What people are paying for to see this show is not just the music, but to be part of something important in the world right now, Thacker says. We have to do something. Thacker refers to Silver, who is currently helping Trinidad, Colorado, develop a music scene as the godmother of the Denver indie music scene. She is awesome, he exclaims. If you go out to a show, she's likely going to be there. She's everywhere at once. I don't think she sleeps. This was her idea. She called her good friends at the Mercury and said, I want to put this show on. Next thing you know, she's texting me saying, I need you to do it. Silver also got in touch with members of Elephant Revival, Slim Cessna's Auto Club, and more for the benefit show. Silver cites Thacker's presence and joyful personality, Devochka's European sound, the deep-seated memory of where we all started in this melting pot of America, Slim Cessna's heartfelt gospel revival, and Bonnie Payne's voice that transcends you into another realm as keystones of how she envisions the Ukraine benefit at the Mercury Cafe being the most beautiful experience possible for all that come to help us help the people who are suffering in Ukraine. For his part, Thacker says he's not writing any songs for the event, as he prefers to leave political songwriting to geniuses like Neil Young or Joe Strummer or Bob Dylan. But he does have a Credence Clearwater Revival cover planned for the Mercury Cafe show. I was listening to Willie and the Poor Boys recently, and Effigy came on, and I just started weeping because it's so powerful, Thacker shares. The lyrics are perfect for this. It's an anthem for all times. John Fogarty wrote it during the Vietnam War, with that same kind of feeling as what's happening now. It's a great song. I hope we will pull it off. Benefit for the Refugees of Ukraine, featuring Nick Urata, Bonnie Payne, Slim Cessna, and the Red Tack. 
6 p.m. Saturday, May 28th, 2199 California Street, Denver. Tickets are $55 at the door or $100 with a signed poster. Donations will also be accepted by contacting the Mercury Cafe, 303-294-9258. Email comments or questions to editorial at boulderweekly.com. How the Sausage is Made Lux Eterna to Play the Bose Friday Night Weird by Michael J. Casey Movies are wondrous, magical, moving pieces of art crafted by human hands, designed to explore the very essence of the human condition, and, in many cases, instill hope in current and future generations. The same cannot be said of the process of making movies. Legion are the stories of troubled productions, scuttled finances, terrible weather, performers and their bad behavior, exploitative directors, and egotistical producers. There are plenty of movies out there about the magic of cinema, but they can't hold a candle to the endless array of movies about making movies. And some of those are the best around. The fascination should be self-evident. Can you think of another profession where the chasm between production and product is this disparate? If a baker has a bad day, the bread doesn't rise. If a basketball player can't find their shot, they don't score a lot of points. But even the worst day on a movie set can still produce something majestic. And that seems to be the impetus behind Argentinian filmmaker Gaspar Noé's Lux Eterna. Made in 2019 and running a brisk 52 minutes, Lux Eterna is a movie composed of two, sometimes three, shots presented side by side like comic book panels. Lux opens with Beatrice Dalle as the movie within the movie's director on the left and Charlotte Gainsbourg as the movie within the movie's lead actor on the right. Dalle plays Dalle and Gainsbourg plays Gainsbourg. They talk about making movies, the sexiness of being burned as a witch, for a movie of course, and how embarrassing it is to shoot a sex scene. Noé punctuates these conversations, as he will the rest of the movie, with quotes from famous filmmakers. Carl Theodore Dreyer, Jean-Luc Goddard, Rainier Werner Fassbender, and so on. It's all very inside baseball and pompous, but so is everything else in Lux. Then, Noe's movie kicks into gear when Dolly and Gainsbourg stop talking about making movies and start making the movie within the movie. Now, Noe's split screens become a cacophony of dialogue, mostly in French, with players coming and going in a flurry of activity. No one seems to know who is who, what they are doing, or what's happening. Everyone is told to comply, and complaints go unresolved. Two actresses, Abby Lee and Clara Deschaies have to strip and get into costume in the makeup room because they don't have trailers. A production assistant kind of holds up a sheet to shield their nudity from the rest of the people in the room. And then the guy making the making of Doc wanders in. Moments like these feel honest. The rest of the movie feels pretentious. Then, an electrical glitch transforms a routine scene of stylized schlock into something beautiful, artistic, and, the longer it goes on, hypnotic and terrifying. It's been over 20 years since Gaspar Noé started ruffling feathers and upsetting the audience with his enfant terrible approach to cinema. Lux Eterna feels a little like a thesis wrapped around a confessional. Email comments or questions to editorial at boulderweekly.com. On the Bill, Lux Eterna, 8.30 p.m., May 20th, Bodecker Theater, Dairy Arts Center, 2590 Walnut Street, Boulder. Recession Resilient With speculation of a recession on the horizon, many question how cannabis would fare in a serious downturn. By Will Brenza. The last few years have been turbulent for the economy. And according to Chair of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, a soft landing that would avoid a recession might not be possible. 
A soft landing is really just getting back to 2% inflation while keeping the labor market strong, Powell said in an interview with NPR's Market Watch. And it's quite challenging to accomplish that right now for a couple of reasons. Among the reasons Powell points are the first global pandemic in 100 years, the stimulus response by our government that created trillions of dollars, the resulting outbreak of inflation, the unexpected outbreak of war in Ukraine, and the recent shutdowns all across China. All of that compounding has set the economy into a spiral that's starting to look more and more like a tailspin, or, in more technical terms, a recession. Since the last U.S. recession in 2008, one very green new industry has blossomed in states across the country. In 2012, just as the U.S. was climbing out of 2008, Colorado legalized cannabis recreationally, launching an industry that would generate over $12 billion between 2014 and 2022. Cannabis has yet to go through a recession. It's one of the few industries of its size that hasn't leaving many to wonder how cannabis will fare if the Fed's landing is as rough as some are anticipating. Historically, vice industries like alcohol and tobacco have shown resilience through economic downturns. During the 2008 recession, alcohol sales remained stable and even saw growth over time. It was the same for tobacco sales. In a study published in Tobacco-Induced Diseases in 2009, researchers found that the three largest tobacco companies in the world saw massive returns despite global downturns across other industries. The sales records of these tobacco companies demonstrate that smokers not only continued to smoke, but also actually increased their cigarette intake during this period of economic difficulty, the study reads. According to Jay Zarowski, a founding partner of the cannabis business consultancy Canna Advisors, the same thing would likely happen to the cannabis industry in a serious downturn. I don't think a recession will hurt sales a whole lot. People want to enjoy their cannabis no matter what, Zarowski says. And after a brief pause, adds, they may need to enjoy it more to keep their spirits up. It wouldn't be dissimilar to the COVID-19 lockdown, Zarowski agrees. People trapped at home, without work, suffering through stressful and uncertain times, turned to liquor stores and dispensaries to assuage their anxiety. According to data collected by the U.S. Census Bureau, just in Colorado, tax collections from alcohol sales jumped 46.6% in March of 2020, 14% in April, and through September it continued to incrementally rise. Tobacco sales saw similar leaps and bounds in tax revenue throughout the year. And cannabis? In Oregon, Washington, Alaska, and Colorado, cannabis sales reached a three-year peak in 2020. I think, as an industry, cannabis will be just fine, Zarowski says. I don't see why a recession is going to keep people from enjoying cannabis. Counterintuitively, a recession might actually make the cannabis industry grow in unexpected ways, Zarowski suggests. The cannabis industry here in Colorado was born out of the Great Recession of 2008, Zarowski says, using himself as an example. He was developing real estate when the 2008 recession hit and turned his career on its head. He and his partner left that industry out of necessity and entered Colorado's budding new cannabis industry instead. Here I am, 13 years later, and still in cannabis. Zarowski just isn't in cannabis. His business, Canna Advisors, is a consultancy group that has helped businesses launch and get established across the country. They help clients win cannabis business licenses, optimize facility designs, standardize operations, and maximize business development. Canna Advisors has helped grow the industry across the U.S., and if it hadn't been for the last recession, Zarowski says, it probably wouldn't exist. If people start to lose their jobs in other industries, we may find them as the next batch of folks that are getting involved in cannabis, he says. That could fuel a new era of growth for an industry that's already exploding. 
If nothing else, that should speak to lawmakers who are hesitant to legalize or decriminalize cannabis in this country. This is a very resilient industry, and whether you support it politically or not, that's a very legitimate reason to support its legalization everywhere. Those folks that still think that this is the devil's lettuce will hopefully realize that they can help protect their communities and protect their states by helping to foster this new industry, Zorowski says. Communities, counties, states, and federal lawmakers should be embracing cannabis, not just for the weed or the tax revenue, but to provide their constituents with secure industries and jobs that are insulated from economic instability, he says. The Fed's landing, soft or not, won't have much of an effect on Colorado's cannabis industry, most economics and consultants like Zarowski agree. So we might as well spark one up before we fasten our seatbelts and secure those oxygen masks. Takeout minus the waste. Repeater makes reusable takeout containers practical and affordable for diners and eateries. By John Lendorf. This is ridiculous. We've said it to ourselves more than once as we tore into our delicious delivered dinner. Our pumpkin curry with chicken is fine, truly hot and tasty. The guilt-laden problem is the garbage that's required to get that entree, steamed rice, and soup to your front door. Especially during the pandemic, we pondered an ever-growing pile of plastic containers that couldn't all be repurposed at home. We saw an embarrassment of disposable silverware or chopsticks, napkins, bags for chips, labels with glue, and little condiment packages, and of course, the plastic bags they come in. Yes, a minuscule proportion of the takeout delivered in Boulder is in real compostable containers, but the reality is that they are unlikely to end up back in local soil growing a crop of heirloom organic pumpkins. Enter Ashwin Ramdas co-owner with Christopher Todd of Repeater, the year-old reusable takeout container service for independent restaurants in Boulder and Denver. Repeater restaurants in Boulder include Cafe Ion, Zeal, Yellow Belly, Boco Restaurant, Cilantro Mexican Restaurant, Fresh Times Eatery, Gurkhas on the Hill, Rincon Argentino, Leaf, and Naked Lunch. I started a zero-waste delivery service in Denver, Ramdas says. During the pandemic, I saw that doing something about the containers could have a bigger impact. The size of the issue has grown, and takeout and delivery in single-use containers is having a huge negative impact on the planet, he adds. So many resources are being wasted on something that is used for a little while and then discarded and will never break down naturally in a dump. Compostables are not much of an improvement, according to Ramdas. A lot of water and resources are involved in compostables. When they break down, they create methane. Compostables are a sham solution, Ramdas says. Compostables also haven't been an adequate solution for many restaurants. Chefs put their soul into a flimsy box that makes soak through the bottom by the time it arrives. Repeater provides restaurants with light, solid, insulated, microwavable plastic containers for takeout and delivery instead of single-use containers. The company retrieves the containers and sanitizes, tracks, and redistributes them to eateries as needed. Diners drop their repeater reusables in a bin at the restaurant. Each container can have hundreds of uses in its lifetime, Ramdas says. So far, 98% of the containers have been returned within two weeks. The key to reusables is making it easy for the customers and the restaurants. Chef Daniel Asher was an enthusiastic early adopter of Repeater's service at his Boulder restaurants, River and Woods and Ashkara. To-go packaging is extremely wasteful and has a terrible impact on the planet, Asher says. To be able to easily adopt a thoughtful, safe, reusable meal packaging solution helps us fulfill our mission of sustainability without disrupting our takeout and delivery logistics. It also elevates our food visually. 
Cafe Ion and its ghost kitchen, Brasserie Boulder, use repeater when requested for takeout and delivery, according to chef Dakota Soifer. It was disheartening during the pandemic seeing how much waste was being created for takeout, Soifer says. Repeater is as cheap or cheaper to use instead of compostables or recyclables. The whole thing is practically hands-off for us, he says. For customers who want their tacos to go in a repeater container, the process is fairly simple and affordable. It does add one more step, Soifer says. Our guests need to sign up for the free repeater app and get an ID code to use in the order. Customers press the repeater button online, the same way they do when they want extra pineapple on their pizza. There is a small fee for using repeaters. Ramdas compares it to borrowing a book from a library and returning in a reasonable amount of time. We are 100% compostable and recyclable in our containers, but guests say they are excited to have this better option, Soifer says. In the short term, Ramdas hopes to involve more local Asian and Indian restaurants, which rely heavily on takeout business. He hopes to partner with third-party delivery services to allow an easy, sustainable way for diners to return their repeater containers. The next big frontier for repeaters is replacing all of those recyclable, single-use pizza delivery boxes that are rarely recycled with a reusable alternative. The key to moving reusable into the mainstream will be getting takeout and delivery aficionados accustomed to the idea. As we saw with electric cars, LED lights, and bringing your own bags to the supermarket, it always takes a while for us to adopt new ideas, Soifer says. It takes some carrots, and it takes some sticks. Local food news. Perfect Paws, a cat-themed cafe and cat sanctuary, is open at 5290 Arapahoe Ave, Suite E in Boulder. You buy an hourly pass to enjoy the coffee and felines. Colorado's most beloved hot dog stand, the Coney Island Boardwalk in Bailey, is on the market for $1.5 million. No doubt it will become a condo, no condiments. The scene lasted only a few seconds, but a bottle of NoCo Distillery's Bourbon 2 Whiskey recently appeared on the television series Star Trek Picard. Star Trek fans' enthusiasm now makes bottles of the spirits from the Fort Collins Distillery hard to find. Words to chew on. When food in the minds of eaters is no longer associated with farming and with the land, then the eaters are suffering a kind of cultural amnesia that is misleading and dangerous. Wendell Berry. John Lendorf hosts Radio Nibbles Thursday on KGNU. Listen to podcasts at news.kgnu.org. Email questions or comments to nibbles at boulderweekly.com. A multi-roaster coffee shop that's a gateway, not a gatekeeper. By Matt Mainpaw. Whiskey, beer, and wine aren't the only things we like to drink in Boulder County. What about the coffee and tea purveyors that keep us calm and caffeinated? Without coffee, this writer would only stare blankly at the blinking cursor. It's easy to pick a favorite shop to grab a cup. Maybe you like the roaster, or you want to support the locals. Maybe you just want to hit the drive through for something sweet and caffeinated on your way back from the gym in the morning. Or maybe you're a big coffee nerd interested in the complex process of sourcing and roasting, looking to find the most unique and interesting new beans for your morning pour-over. Full disclosure, I am closer to the latter than any of the former. Boulder's newest coffee shop, January Coffee, hopes to offer a happy medium for coffee nerds and everyone else with a blend of adventurous roasts and familiar coffee comforts. The interior is spacious and welcoming, with two floors worth of seating and an outdoor patio. The coffee menu itself is simple, with drip, french press, cold brew, and standard espresso offerings supplemented by house-made syrups. Our motto is that great coffee is for everyone, says January Coffee co-owner John Imig. We want to be a neighborhood coffee shop for people that just want to come in and not think about their coffee without getting a TED talk about where their coffee comes from. 
Imig, who opened the shop with his wife, Christy Persinger, also wants a space for exciting new roasts and techniques as well. To that end, they've leaned on their shared experiences in the coffee world. Imig and Persinger combined decades of experience in the industry, having both worked for roasters like Intelligentsia, Stumptown, and local companies like Ozo Coffee. The name January Coffee holds multiple meanings for the owners. January was the month they started dating, bonding over a mutual love of coffee and a desire to open a shop together as they shared Pinterest boards of coffeehouse concepts. January is also a nod to the Roman god Janus, patron of doorways, transitions, and new beginnings, Persinger says. For the owners, January coffee represents a transition from workers to ownership, but they are hopeful it can become a gateway for new coffee lovers as well. Rather than roasting their beans in-house, the pair are bringing in coffee from all over the country. The staple will be Arkansas-based Onyx Coffee Lab, Amig says, but two more roasters will fill out the menu. January Coffee currently offers roasts from two Bay Area producers, Ritual Coffee from San Francisco and Mother Tongue from Oakland, which will then rotate every few months. We want to have that range where there's something for everyone, the coffee nerds and people who just want something reliable, Persinger says. To keep things balanced, the couple aren't just picking favorites. The roast selection process comes from blind cupping of samples they've received. Some come from friends that they've made throughout the country, others from colleagues in the barista competition scene. Emig says they have their roasters picked out for at least the next couple years, but are always on the hunt for new flavor profiles. Every once in a while, we want to try something new, so it's fun to have different roasters coming through, Imig says. It keeps us engaged and our staff engaged as we try new coffees. The house espresso blend from Onyx Coffee Lab is a balanced profile, striking a line between a darker, earthy quality and some brighter fruit notes found in lighter roasts. Presented in a cortado, equal parts espresso and steamed milk, the result was smooth and delicate without any overwhelming bitterness, and no sweetener required, though your mileage may vary. Seasonal specials are also on the menu, utilizing the unique house-made syrups and skills Imig and Persinger have honed throughout their years as baristas and bartenders. Espresso tonics and shaken drinks are coming down the line eventually, Persinger says, to keep things creative. The current special, Roses Are Dead, adds a rose cardamom honey syrup to nitro cold brew coffee and cold oat milk foam, garnished with dried rose petals. The result brings out the floral notes in the cold brew without tasting like perfume, with a rich texture that rolls across the tongue. Just over a month after January Coffee opened its doors, the couple have reasonable ambitions. Persinger and Imig hope to eventually expand to new locations in the county, eyeballing Longmont in particular to stick closer to home. In the interim, the plan is to encourage their staff to develop and hone their own skills. With a location just east of 30th Street on Walnut Avenue, January Coffee is worth a trip whether you are a coffee aficionado or just need a tasty midday pickup. Details. January Coffee, 1886 30th Street, Sweet B, Boulder. Contact the author at mattmainpot at gmail.com. Masterclass Boulder by Benjamin Ritema. Don't understand the Boulder bubble? Confused as to how to navigate this highly educated, blisteringly white environment? The University of Colorado is offering classes both for longtime residents and new arrivals to help traverse Boulder's culture. Astrology 101. Introduction to Star Signs, Moon Cycles, Energies, Soul Chakras, Coexist Bumper Stickers, Dream Catchers, Incense, and How to Deal with People Who Don't Wear Deodorant. Students will learn the basics of Sun Paths, Moon Paths, Soul Paths, and How to Walk Paths in general. 
includes an examination of energy and its effect on everything from a successful drug trip to finding true love to choosing the right herbal supplement. Dietary Restrictions 221 Explores over 300 dietary requirements and their effect on a potential dinner party. Allows students to distinguish between someone who has a legitimate dietary concern and the person who is high maintenance in general. Extreme Sports 321 Examines the punishing sports and hobbies that residents of Boulder pursue voluntarily. Teaches the biographies of people who died doing something few care about delves into the psychology of the average biker in tight spandex, the explosion of try-hard climbers, and whether you can have a normal conversation with an Ironman competitor. Cannabis Culture 201 Traces the trajectory of the ancient pothead in Central Asia to the modern-day housemate who lacks motivation for even the simplest task. Explores how legalization has opened the door to society as a whole for long-winded conversations, hanging out, and decorating an apartment with Buddhist prayer flags. Left Politics 107 Introduces students to accepted stances in Boulder on key issues like immigration, affordable housing, organic vegetables, race, polyamorous relationships, addiction, and penises. Students learn how these stated positions contrast with nimbyism and its proponents. Psychedelics 311. Lab and Lecture. Part of the Drug Culture Class Series. Explores what to expect from mushrooms, LSD, and DMT in terms of feeling a greater sense of connection towards soft blankets, Pink Floyd, and humanity as a whole. Consists of several field projects where students must locate and ingest mushrooms on a camping trip, then return to society and proselytize about how their life was revolutionized by psychedelics. Woke Terminology 221 The first half of the course explores the various terms, phrases, and insinuations that kill a conversation faster than a reference to Christianity. The second half dissects situations some may find themselves in, such as quoting a rap song you really like. Homelessness 111 Teaches the origin of the average unhoused person you may see in Boulder. Entails a series of guest lectures from homeless individuals who reflect on their time in prison, their amputated toes, what it's like to negotiate with a drug dealer when all you have is a trash bag filled with worthless crap. Green Practices 221 Examines ineffectual strategies to save the planet, such as recycling, turning the car off at stoplights, and buying a bicycle but never riding it. Then, the course will contrast these with environmentally friendly methods like separating yourself from society and living in a solar-powered cabin in the woods, or killing yourself to eliminate your carbon emissions. Real Estate 101 introduces the idea that few will ever be able to afford a house in Boulder or one of the surrounding areas, investigates alternatives such as moving to another state or buying a house in Mead. Development 133 delves into the continuing growth of Boulder from hippie getaway to shiny, tech-centric hub devoid of character, examines how small businesses are bulldozed to make new hotels, conference centers, and chain restaurants. Benjamin Ritema writes and publishes a satirical zine in Boulder called the Squid Weekly. This column does not necessarily reflect the views of Boulder Weekly. Email comments or questions to editorial at boulderweekly.com. Thank you again for joining us for this week's edition of the Boulder Weekly, and my name is Orion Rooney.